All right, let's open up our Bibles to Luke 12, uh, excuse me, 11. We're going to read two passages. I'm going to try to put them together today. First, Luke 11:14. 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, he will, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In Luke 19, 28, a triumphal entry passage in Luke. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this word, good word, endures forever. Thanks be to God. So it's a day like today. It's the Sunday prior to Jesus' brutal 
suffering and agonizing death on the cross, that excruciating out of the cross, etymology of that word on the cross, that death, and we call it the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. So Jesus is in Bethpage in Bethany. He's almost there. Remember back in chapter nine, verse 51, he already set the scene for us because in this whole discipleship trek, he said, I'm setting my face for Jerusalem. And now he's arriving. He's about to reach his goal, the core of his whole ministry. And so Luke, just like Matthew and Mark, record that with this meticulous detail that Jesus sends out two of his disciples to go find a certain cult to borrow that cult, and when the owners ask what they're doing, to tell them that the Lord has need of it, and then he records the whole event transpiring methodically just as he sent them out to fulfill it. And so there's a lot of detail in that triumphal entry passage that's given to that little arrangement, the way he sends them out and the way it methodically happens to the letter. And so we ask, why does he record it like that and expend the space in his book for that? And on the one hand, it just shows us that Jesus is in utter and complete control over everything, everything. As he enters Jerusalem down to the details, he's in charge because it's very soon gonna appear like things are spiraling out of control, they go off the rails. And so the gospel writers wish to underscore the fact that he is sovereign down to the details. And so we're to be assured as we look at Jesus going into Jerusalem that he knows absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, what's about to happen. Even more, he's in complete control over it. He's acting according to the Father's plan for our true good. And we call Friday Good Friday, not because in itself it's good, but because he's acting for our good. And our greatest good is accomplished on that day. And so if that's the case for the very worst tragedy in history, that that. God himself would be crucified by his creatures. And if that results in the greatest good in history, the salvation of his people, then all other tragedies also surely occur under God's sovereignty. And even if we never understand why and can't ever make ends meet over it, we can know that they too will result in our ultimate good. And so R.C. Sproul had it this way, every tragedy is ultimately a blessing for the child of God. It's an amazing thing to be able to say that. Or Lloyd-Jones said it this way, the wonderful thing about the Christian life is we can be uncertain about the immediate, what's happening now, and be completely certain about the ultimate. And that's really what we need. And so we may be bewildered by what's going on in the midst of tragedy and disaster like the last couple of weeks and like little tragedies, not little, like real tragedies and disasters you have gone through. 
but we can rest assured that God will finally use it for a good end. And the cross is the signal proof of that. So that's on the one hand. Now on the other hand, the gospel writers methodically report it to stress the importance of what Jesus is doing. And so I like what the commentator Hendrickson says. He goes, Jesus is exercising his right of requisitioning whatever he needs for the fulfillment of his mediatorial task. It's a great word, requisition. And so it's a military word. He's like the general, the warrior king, and he requisitions the supplies he needs to accomplish his mission. That cult is requisitioned by the king as he enters into Jerusalem. He needs it. And so what's the purpose of the cult? Well, you see, pilgrims walked to Jerusalem for the feasts. They trekked on foot miles and miles up to Jerusalem for the feast. They didn't ride, it's kings who rode. And so what Jesus is doing is purposeful, it's meaningful, it's an intentional symbolic action. By this deed, he's publicly declaring himself to be king, to be Messiah. It's a visible witness, an acted quotation of Zechariah 9.9. And Matthew's account makes that explicit by including the quotation. So Zechariah 9.9 says it this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. He has it. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he's proclaiming that he's the king, the one that Zechariah said was going to come and had to come. And once Jesus does this publicly, there's no going back. It's his crossing of the Rubicon. It's either gonna go well for him or poorly for him. And really it depends upon the kind of Messiah he is. But that's the other thing that happens here by referencing in his public action, Zechariah 9.9, he's proclaiming not only that he is Messiah, but the kind of Messiah he is. The kind of king he will be. He will be the kind of king that Zechariah prophesied we needed and had to have. Zechariah said he wouldn't enter on a white stallion, he wouldn't enter on a powerful charger, he wouldn't enter on a majestic war horse to do battle against Rome to restore their political freedom and national independence. That, that's not his mission, Zechariah said. He's not about changing one earthly government for another. He's not about helping alleviate the problems, the physical problems of a people in that way. He's about much more. So he enters on a common donkey, a beast of burden, the Israelites' wheelbarrow, an animal for work, not war. He enters humble and lowly because his mission is different from what the crowd thinks it's going to be. And since his mission is different, it requires different methods. It requires going down in humility and service like no one has ever done before. 
And so what is that mission and why does it require humility? Well, 951 already set the scene for us. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And prior to that, he already said what was going to happen in Jerusalem. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed and on the third day raised. Jesus must, and he knows he must, enter Jerusalem to suffer and die on a cross. He himself must become a beast of burden to carry our sins for us. And so why does he have to endure this? And of course we can say a ton here. The whole New Testament would explain that. But I, I, want, I want to see it in light of our first passage. Because our first passage is, fills it out. One, one answer to that question and a profound answer to that question. And so if you remember in Luke 11, we've, last two weeks we've been talking about prayer the Lord's Prayer, and then how do you pray? And so then we shift to this passage that on the surface of things seems like an abrupt change. Like we, we, we took a big shift from prayer to what we are encountering now in Luke 11. But, but think about it. Jesus says the greatest gift the Father gives his children is that in answer to prayer, he gives us the greatest gift, which is the Holy Spirit, the source of all good. And then immediately afterward, Luke reminds us that there are evil spirits that oppose us and want to deprive us of all good. And you see, this event about the demon doesn't happen chronologically after Jesus' teaching on prayer. Luke intentionally places it here to mark that contrast, and he's telling us in the sharpest way possible, but beware, you are in the midst of spiritual warfare. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so a demon takes possession of a man and makes him mute. He's in the thrall of an evil spirit under the demon's power and authority. Sinclair Ferguson says it beautifully. He's a living illustration of life without Jesus Christ. Of life without Jesus Christ, of living life without the privilege and power of the Lord's prayer. And just think today, if you were not permitted or could not, Pray the Lord's Prayer. It, it'd be tough. Mark that. What if you couldn't pray, Father? And what if you couldn't say, Hallowed be thy name? What if you couldn't say, Thy kingdom come with all the beauty of it? What if you couldn't say, Give us each day our daily bread? Forgive me of my sins and lead me not into temptation and trial. What if you couldn't? He's a fearsome example of what the devil aims to deprive you of. He literally can't pray the Lord's prayer. He's mute. It's meant to be prayed publicly. And in him, we see the devil's hateful strategy for us all to keep us from a vital relationship with a loving father, a gracious savior, and the life-giving spirit. 
By any means necessary, the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. We've seen it played out devastating ways in the last couple of weeks. But by the only means possible, Jesus comes to give us abundant life, which he does on the cross. So right there we see the main purpose of this section. We see that Jesus is more than enough for the demon. With a word, he casts the demon out of the possessed man and the man is once again free, loose from his muzzle and he can speak. And I just wonder, are the first words out of his mouth the Lord's Prayer? And so the crowd stands amazed and marveling at Jesus, but that doesn't mean they believe in him. See, the devil has many strategies. He doesn't care which he uses as long as he can restrain people from going to Jesus and receiving all the blessings of the gospel. And so Matthew tells us some do believe in him, but Luke signals two groups of people, two groups who reject Jesus even in the face of such a public and powerful miracle. One approaches him with defiance, and they look at Jesus and say, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Beelzebub is another word for Satan. If you read that traumatic little novel in high school called The Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Flies is a translation of Beelzebub. So you have this crazy book, well, it's actually so insightful, As our culture thinks, if you can be young and on a remote island, you'd be free from all evil and all of a sudden utter chaos results because the devil is everywhere and the heart of man is sinful. Beelzebub is another name for Satan. So they come defiantly, but there's another group that comes and indulges its own doubts and they want more information. They say, well, just give us another sign. Like this one's not enough. We want another one. That's so common, give me more before I will believe in you. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But look at Jesus right here. Luke says Jesus knows their thoughts. It's kind of a particularity of Luke. He likes to say that. Jesus knows what we think. He knows what we think. And you just see his mercy here. Not only is he so merciful to to help a guy out in such need, that's who he goes after, but he's also so merciful to reason with such cynical, skeptical people. Like he doesn't just dismiss them, he engages them. So encouraging that he does that with my own complaining and skeptical thinking. So on the one hand, he says, As he responds to them, it wouldn't make any sense if Satan were to cast out demons because it would destroy his kingdom. For every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. Then on the other hand, he reminds them that they have their own exorcists that actually on occasion can cast out demons. So their accusation is against them too. So he's reasoning with them and disabusing them of those ridiculous complaints. But then after those two logical arguments... Again, the grace to reason with them, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And this is the whole kicker here. He looks at them and says, he squares them in their eyes and says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we see Jesus' primary purpose here 
Jesus wants them to know and proves it by this sign, I'm the true king. God is bringing in his rule and reign in this broken world through me. I'm here to cast out the evil one. And so Matthew says Jesus performs this miracle by the spirit of God. Luke alters that to say it's by the finger of God. We wonder why, because Luke likes to talk about the spirit. And he's just spoken about the spirit. The main reason is that Luke puts Jesus' exorcism in that wonderful flow of all God's redeeming acts. Because see, the Old Testament would speak about the spirit of God as the hand of God and therefore also as the finger of God. For example, in the Exodus, that list of plagues, on the third plague of the gnats, the the magicians of Pharaoh approach Pharaoh and say, we've seen nothing like this. Like, we can't reproduce it by our magic arts. This is nothing else but the finger of God. I can't explain it. And so Jesus is telling this crowd, if you thought what Moses did at the exodus, through the plagues, to redeem the people from Pharaoh was something, what I'm gonna do is blow in your mind. I'm gonna undercut Beelzebub himself, and that's why I'm here. It's the greatest exodus that has ever occurred, and that exodus pointed to this one. 1 John 3, 8, Jesus says, I appear to destroy the works of the devil, and therefore to rescue those imprisoned by him. If I've done this by God's power, then God's kingdom has come upon you, his rule and reign to correct and heal this world. So then Jesus gives this riveting parable. He describes the devil like a strong man. And he's really a type of king. He's, he's fully armed. He's vigilant over his palace and over all his goods, which includes people. And it's this eerie way to speak of the devil's control over people, really. Everything is safe under the control of the evil one. And so everything goes along as plans. Everybody's impervious to sin, ignorant of the gospel. So what does it take to undermine such a kingdom? Well, it takes, Jesus says, one stronger than him. And he's got to come on the scene and attack him and take away his armor, divide up his spoil. And only in this way, as he invades his palace, can he rescue people from his power, dramatically rescue them even as he rescued the man from the possessed demon. And Jesus is proclaiming, that's what I've come to do. And so Jesus makes this application. He says, that's because I'm this king, I'm the long expected one, because I'm the one that's gonna undo the work of the devil and rescue the people, and it can only be me, you must decide for me or against me. You can't stand aloof and undecided and skeptical and cynical. And the reason is you have to be on my side or on the devil's side, it's a war, or you have to gather with me and scatter like a harvest or like sheep looking for their, a shepherd looking for his sheep. You have to join with me. And so this all leads to the triumphal entry and the kind of, Je- the kind of Messiah Jesus is. So at the triumphal entry, with all this in the background, because they're praising him for the mighty works he's done, his disciples then, as he gets on the colt, declaring the kind of Messiah he is, 
They placed their cloaks on the donkey and they placed their cloaks on the road. They waved palm branches, as the other gospels tell us, symbols of victory and symbols of the exodus. They give him the red carpet treatment into the city because the king is coming. And then this wider group of disciples, this whole multitude breaks out in exuberant, spontaneous praise for all his mighty works. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest, or as others say, Hosanna, blessed is he. Hosanna meaning save us, we pray, a declaration of the king's salvation as he enters Jerusalem. And so we look at these disciples and they are putting themselves on Jesus' side. They are gathering with Jesus as Jesus commands. They're doing that in the face of other Jewish and Pharisee skepticism and criticism. And yet, and yet, no one there really knows what Jesus came to accomplish. And many, even among his wider group of disciples, will reject him because he's not the kind of Messiah they had expected. Because they want Rome to be repelled and their dignity to be restored and they're focused on their government and their nation. And so Jesus, once he does not fulfill their expectations, the symbolism here is profound. A donkey bears him into Jerusalem, but he will then have to bear his own cross. But in light of the exorcism story, let's see what Jesus is really committing himself to as he rides into Jerusalem. Because as he rides in Jerusalem, he's subjecting himself to the true salvation we need. And so like Luke changes Matthew and Mark, they speak of in the passage we looked at earlier that a stronger one has to enter the strong man's house. But Luke changes that and he says he has to enter the strong man's palace or fortress or courtyard. He's making it a fuller picture. And Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's literally heading to temple courts and palaces and fortresses, literally. He's entering the seat of Jewish power and the seat of Roman or Gentile power. But really, he's entering the seat of humanity, fallen man, influenced and controlled by the evil one to oppose God and his saving work. It's humanity at its worst. And they're gonna join together and condemn him. It's the height of spiritual warfare against God. It becomes the headquarters of Satan, the spiritual warfare at its apex. He's entering literal palaces, fortress, and courtyard inhabited by the evil one himself because he's doing battle against him and that's the real war. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God prophesied that one would crush the serpent's head though the serpent would strike his heel. Jesus is heading for his heel to be struck so that he can vanquish the evil one. And so as he enters on that donkey, that beast of burden in humility, he's entering to crush the head of the serpent. But to do that, to be that kind of Messiah, he's got to go down to the depths of the curse. He must take into himself all the consequences of sin into his own person. He must be given over to the power of darkness. 
He must endure all the malice, oppression, and violence of the devil. And don't you know the demons were giddy with their frenzied delight over getting Jesus in their hands? They've always been jealous of him. They always wanted his place. And they always feared his work. And now they can do with him what they will. And they fomented and incited the pride and resentment and cruelty of Jewish and Gentile power to crucify him. And don't you imagine the ecstatic thrill of the demons when Jesus is blasphemed? When he's condemned falsely at court? When the nation says he's not Messiah? When the nation declares they're for Caesar, not their Messiah? When they flog him 39 times with deep contusions in his body and filleting his back and legs and leading him into hypovolemic shock? To mock and scorn and spit on him and shame him publicly? To place a purple robe on him and call him Hail King of the Jews? to force him to carry his own crossbeam, to nail him to the cross with these five by seven square inch nails that, tr- that penetrate his median nerve, to place the sentence over his head, to watch him slowly over the course of hours agonizingly asphyxiate, finally dying of cardiac arrest, a broken heart both physically and spiritually, to have soldiers pierce his heart and blood and water flow, to convert him in the eyes of all as a worthless piece of trash. Useless. And we see in that the serpent exhausting all his venom against him. And Jesus sunk down to the pit of the curse, the darkness itself, and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God incorporated all that in his mysterious plan to heap judgment upon him right there at the cross in our place. And when he had done it all, he cries out before dying, it is finished, it's paid in full. He's taken all the consequences of sin that the devil could throw at him in his power. And by that, he overcame the devil and took his armor away and divided up his spoil He invades the devil's palace, the demon's stronghold, the darkness itself of death, and rescues us. He frees us from the kingdom of darkness and passes us into the kingdom of light, as if we're dispossessed of the evil one, into a kingdom of love and joy, the Lord's prayer itself. And all he bids us to is to place our faith in him and to receive it as a gift and decide with him and gather with him. Why would we stay in a defeated household in a ruined palace? And if we proclaim by faith, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, save me, I pray, from the evil one in my own sin. And that's why the king requisitions a donkey. Because he wants us to know he has to descend into the pit and bear our burden on our behalf to undo our death sentence and release us from the devil's power. And that is the kind of savior we need and that is the kind of king we believe in. And that means the triumphal entry is more triumphant than we could ever imagine. And the palm branches of Palm Sunday are more amazing than we could ever comprehend. 
And that's why in the midst of anything we can say, for I'm convinced that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. Neither trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. That nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. Let's stand.